The following sermon audio has been brought to you by Christ Church Downtown. For more information, check us out online at www.christkirk.com. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's rise and worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you from Romans 15, verses 10 and 11. And again, God says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up unto the Lord. Our Father and our God, how glorious it is that you call us to rejoice. You don't command us to meditate silently to escape our passions or to climb a mountain to meet with you or to achieve a certain level of holiness to become your people. No, we are to rejoice. And we rejoice because of all that you have done. Once we were not a people, but now we are your people. Once we needed mercy, but now we have received mercy. We were once far off, but we have been brought near by your Son, Jesus. And so we will rejoice. Even now, we rejoice and we praise you, O Lord, and amen. Amen. So as we work our way through the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, we come now to the fruit of peace. And most all of us agree that we want peace. This is, of course, the classic answer to the beauty pageant question, what's the most important thing our society needs? World peace, of course. But it's easy enough to see that the world is not at peace. There's war in the Middle East, vitriol in the Supreme Court confirmation hearings, violence in the cities. But this lack of peace is not just out there. It's here. It's here in you, in your marriage, in your tantruming kid, in your eye roll in your snarky response to your roommate, in your heart. And if your life is not filled with the fruit of peace, Paul shows what your life will be filled with. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. All of these are sin. So how do you get peace on earth, goodwill towards men? Well, that's the glorious tidings that the angels told the shepherds. Jesus has come. Jesus has come. He's over there. Go find him. The prince of peace has come into the world of sin to make peace between God and man. So true peace, true peace always begins with gospel peace. Gospel peace comes to those sinners who were once completely hostile to God who have been reconciled to God through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. You have peace with God because your sins have forgiven through Christ. So your warfare has ended. And this peace with God is the foundation for all the peace that we can have with one another. So let's take an example. Think about a marriage squabble. Suppose the husband says something really cruel to his wife during breakfast. And now the husband and the wife 
they're out of fellowship. And either they go really hot and loud with shouting and brawling, or they're silent and chilly. But either way, there is no peace. So what should they, what should they do? They should both turn to Jesus, the Prince of Peace. And in this case, the husband is the sinner, and he must confess the sin to his wife, and God, who is faithful and just to forgive the sin and to cleanse him from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. And then the wife, the one who has been sinned against, must forgive the sin, just like Christ forgave her sins. Ephesians 4, 32. And then they reconcile, they hug, they give each other a kiss of the holy peace, right? And peace is restored once that sin is dealt with. And imagine, imagine that instead of excusing or ignoring or shaming the hurt into silence, imagine if people truly confessed their sins and truly forgave their sins. Right? How would that change what happens in the, in the Senate? or in your family, or in your history, or in your heart. Peace in your life begins when you turn to the Prince of Peace. From James 2, verse 10, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. Father, we confess that we have failed to repent of our sin and turn to Jesus as the only means to be reconciled to you and to others. Because we have refused the Prince of Peace, we have instead turned to alternative means of peace, whether it's tolerance laws or campus safe spaces, man-centered marriage counseling, personality types, or trying to bribe a crying brother with candy, all of which fail to bring peace. Instead of acknowledging our failure, we smother all disagreement or shame others into silence. Father, we want peace in our life, in our country, in our church, in our lives. And so we repent and we submit to the Prince of Peace. And we confess our own individual sins to you now and Selah. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, and our Savior. And amen. amen. Please rise for the assurance of God's pardon. From Isaiah 12, verse 3. Therefore, with joy, you shall draw water from the wells of salvation. Brothers and sisters, the very good news, the bubbling well that has no end, is that Jesus Christ waged war on your sin and because he fought your sin and if you humbly confess your sins to him then because of his work in the gospel your sins are forgiven through Christ thanks be to God amen our text this morning comes from Deuteronomy 13 verse 5 these are the words of God and that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he hath spoken to turn you away from the Lord your God, 
which brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of bondage to thrust thee out of the way which the Lord thy God commanded thee to walk in. So shalt thou put the evil away from the midst of thee. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've brought us here by your spirit to hear your voice unto us, your word unto us. We pray that uh, those who uh, have backslidden would be convicted and stirred to seek you once more. We pray for those who have been fighting the good fight, that they would be encouraged in the battle. And we pray for those this morning who have never trusted in you, whether uh, through never hearing or through hypocrisy and trusting to their own self-righteousness. Lord, I pray that this morning, by your word, uh, you would convict, you would feed, you would stir us all up to seek you and to trust in your only son, Jesus, our Lord. It's in his name we pray. Amen. As always, it's wonderful to be with you all this morning. Always great to join with you all in worship. Uh, as uh, when, when Ty asked me a couple weeks back if I could pick up this Sunday to, to preach, and we were talking through what, um, as we're working through Deuteronomy here at CCD, I said, so where, where are you going to, like, what's the plan? Where are you going to be at in the book of Deuteronomy? And he said, well, I was thinking you could take the whole capital punishment, death penalty part of it. So thank you, Ty, for... There's lots of great truths to be gleaned from uh, this, this command, this mandate throughout the book of Deuteronomy that I want to touch on. So as we look through, through history, through the Old Testament history, think of Adam. He was exiled after, after he sinned, after he'd eaten the fruit, he was exiled. He and Eve were exiled from Eden. The Hebrew indicates that he was driven by the Lord out of Eden, exiled. Cain, after he had murdered his brother, it, same sort of language is used, that he was driven from God's presence, driven out east of Eden. When the flood comes, the language there is that the floods are God's army, the waters are God's army to drive out and to wipe out and to purge out the earth of man's corruption. When Sodom was destroyed, it was destroyed by God's heavenly fire. It was no accident. It was God sending his judgment, sending his war upon a sinful town of Sodom and Gomorrah. On the night of Passover, uh, Moses gave direction to the Israelites that as the, the death angel was going to sweep through Egypt, killing the firstborn of the Egyptians, that they were to purge out yeast from their homes. Uh, so the, the, the yeast, was the leaven, was to be purged out of Hebrew homes. Not a, not a speck of it was to be found in the homes of the Israelites. I'll return to that a little bit later. Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, after this great glorious uh, beginning of uh, consecration of the tabernacle, the next day they think, hey, this was a pretty cool uh, fire of God had fallen and consumed the, the offering that they had offered the day before. And they thought, hey, let's, let's ride on this spiritual high. Let's offer our own little concoction of incense to the Lord, which God had explicitly said, don't do that. Don't make your own recipe for the incense. And as a result, the very next day after God had consumed the offering on the altar, fire of the Lord once again comes out, divine fire comes out and burns alive Nadab and Abihu for their offering of strange fire. As Israel is coming into the promised land and the story of Jericho and the walls fall down after marching around it for seven days and shouting at the, the end of it, 
the, the, the command had been given, don't touch any of the treasure, any of the spoil, for this is going to be used and consecrated uh, to build the Lord's house eventually. But Achan uh, was envious, was covetous, and decided to, to hide some of it. And as a result, once it was found out, he was stoned, and then he and his whole household were stoned and then burned for keeping the consecrated items. As Israel and with Joshua's, uh, as their captain, leading them through the promised land, conquering it, 31 kings, 31 hostile empires were wiped out of the promised land. And the description scripture gives us is that that their iniquity of the Canaanites had filled up to to the fullness. And God was sending Israel in as as the means of his judgment upon these 31 sinful, wicked kingdoms. Many, many years later, Israel was exiled into Assyria, and then Judah, a couple years later, was carried off captive into Babylon, and the reason being for their idolatries. Unless we think that's just the mean God of the Old Testament. That same God, shortly after Pentecost, struck down Ananias and Sapphira for their deceit and their trickery, their, their, their falseness in pretending to give the Lord a, give, give to the work of God a great gift while secretly keeping back some. The problem wasn't that they kept back some, it was that they were trying to look like they had given it all. And God struck them down. Paul commanded the excommunication n- numerous times. He says, uh, drive out the, the one in your midst who is uh, an unrepentant brother, excommunicate him, drive him out, turn him over to the jurisdiction of Satan is the, the language that's used. Stern language. And of course, the Bible ends with a marked warning that unbelievers shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Revelation 21.8. So as you survey all of that, what's the lesson? The lesson is that God will drive out and drives out sinners from his presence. God will judge sinners. And the modern evangelical tendency oftentimes with this sort of doctrine, this sort of teaching, these sort of passages, the evangelical tendency in modern day is to sort of skim over such doctrines. And and then we fall all over ourselves trying to emphasize how gracious, merciful, and loving God is. And and in doing that, we're running frantically around with the cure that no one realizes they need. They say, I've got the cure, I've got the cure, I've got the cure. And everyone's looking around going, well, what's the problem? <laughs> what's the disease? What's, the, uh, what's wrong with us? Think of uh, back in the day, Jonathan Edwards preaching sinners in the hands of an angry God. It wasn't a seeker-sensitive message, right? It wasn't a God just loves you and wants you to be happy and comfortable and live, a, live a, your best life now. It was, a me- it was not a message about how cute and cuddly Jesus is. It was not a message that your average youth pastor might give that Jesus is your homeboy. It was a blazing proclamation that God would judge unrepentant sinners. And if you've read uh, stories and, and, and the accounts of during the Great Awakening and, and during, for instance, when Jonathan Edwards was first gave sinners in the hands of an angry God... People were terrified. They were holding to the pillars of the church in terror, saying, what must we do to be saved? Because they had heard what the disease was. They had heard that they were damned 
in their trespasses and sins. They had heard that they were dead in their trespasses and sins. They had heard that God's judgment awaited those who were unrepentant, those who would not turn in faith to Jesus Christ, those who would trust their own self-righteousness, that this lake that burns with fire and brimstone was what awaited the unregenerate, the unrepentant. And so it's, as, we look, as you look through all of Deuteronomy and all the law, you have to keep in mind that one of the functions of it is to reveal the disease, is to reveal the death that is at the heart of man. And God's method for dealing with it, God's purpose to purge it out from the world that he's created. It reminds me of uh, once when I was, uh, many years ago, back in Colorado, when I was leaving uh, a Colorado Rockies baseball game, which, uh, glad to say, the Rockies made it to the postseason this year for all of like four games. We don't have much postseason experience, but it was great postseason this year. But we were leaving the, the, the Rockies game, you know, the hordes of people leaving the stadium, walking down the street, and the sort of, uh, your, your typical street preacher was there on the, on the street corner, shouting out to the passing crowds, Jesus saves, Jesus saves, Jesus saves, to which one tipsy smart aleck replied, then where's my money? <laughs> you see, one of the functions of gospel preaching is not just to declare Jesus loves you, that Jesus saves you. It's also to preach what Jesus saves us from, what death we deserve, what the disease actually is. So to sort of take a step back and look at the book of Deuteronomy and what's going on here, um, back in Deuteronomy 5, remember that Moses sort of goes back over the Ten Commandments and, and, and he reminds them, that when the Ten Commandments were given, how God's holy presence had descended upon Mount Sinai, and that Mount Sinai, and the language here is that it burned, it was blazing with fire, with God's divine fire, when the law was given. That's the image that's given to us of the giving of the law, this burning, blazing, holy fire upon the, the, the mountain of the law. And what that reveals is that Jehovah was a holy God. And though he was covenanting, he was coming to uh, unite himself in a relationship with Israel, it, they weren't to think that he was still, a, that, that, that he wasn't a God who would just overlook their sins and turn a blind eye to it. He was still a God who would not endure sin, which is why the imagery and the, the the language there is that Sinai burned with holy fire, that sin would not be tolerated, that evil would be driven out of the camp of Israel. So though he was covenanting with Israel, this wasn't to make them think that God was their homeboy, that God was their chum, that God was their buddy-buddy. Uh, Remember that the law was intended not only to restrain evildoers, but it was also, so at the bare minimum, the law was to just say, don't do that. <laughs> Slap your wrist, don't do that. Don't, don't, don't kill people. Don't, don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't do that. At the, at the bare minimum, that's what it was doing, is saying, don't go there. There's the boundaries. But at a deeper level, it, it reflects back to man his sinfulness. Because the law says, thou shalt not kill. And then along comes feelings of hatred, and you realize that rising up within you are these angry, bitter, murderous thoughts. 
And it reveals that, yeah, I maybe haven't committed murder, but in here, I sure want to commit murder from that guy that just cut me off or from that person who just offended me or from that, uh, that business transaction that went sour. I want to take that guy out. So the law not only says don't go there, it also says look what's in you. It reflects back to us our sinfulness. But the most glorious and, and wonderful part of it is that it graciously revealed the means for man to enjoy fellowship with God through the sacrifices. So as you read through, say, Leviticus, and you get through sort of the repetition of like, okay, take the sheep, and cut it open, take the fat, I get, I get it, I get it, I get it. Can I skip these chapters? The, the point there uh, is that this is the means whereby sinful, wicked, fallen man can have his, his, his sinfulness is revealed, and as a result, here's the mediator, here's the media, mediatorial, here's the, the, the means whereby he can be united and have fellowship with God was through the sacrifices, through the innocent blood being shed. So as we go through Deuteronomy, it's basically Moses' sermon series on the Ten Commandments. If you, if you um, look to John Calvin's Harmony of the Law, it's really interesting how what he does is he gives all the history of the people coming out of Egypt, and then he sort of chops up the uh, Exodus, Numbers, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, he chops them all up, sorts them out, and says, look how all of these fall under one of the heads of the Ten Commandments. So that everything that's going on here and everything that Moses is doing falls very nicely into one of these Ten Commandments. And what Deuteronomy is, is sort of the unpacking, the expository preaching of the Ten Commandments. Explaining, giving reason, giving further prohibitions and guidelines, that sort of thing. Throughout this book, Moses clarifies, and that's our text th this morning, Moses clarifies which violations of the law could be punished with death, with stoning. But more importantly, he tells them why. So our text, the, the text here in Deuteronomy 13 covers really the first through third commandments, that you shall have no other gods before me, you shall make no graven images, that, that worship of the one true God is, is mandatory for Israel. And if, and as you see here in, in chapter 13, if anyone tries to turn you away from that, if anybody tries to lead you astray, they must be executed. Deuteronomy 21, 21, and 22, 21, deals with the fifth commandment of dishonoring your father and mother. That, too, could be punished with death. Uh, now, before the parents get all excited about, uh, hey, I've been wanting to deal with this child for a while, I'll unpack that a little bit more later. In addition, murder in Deuteronomy 19.13 and 21.9, adultery in Deuteronomy 22.22-24, bearing false witness in Deuteronomy 17, 6 through 7, and 19, 19, along with theft slash slave trading slash kidnapping slash human trafficking in Deuteronomy 24, 7. These are all to be punished, potentially, with execution. And Moses' customary concluding phrase to each of these sections is, is, the, is the phrase, thus shall thou Put away the evil from the midst of thee, which gives the underlying reason for the executions. 
which I think is really helpful. It's, it's, it's striking that God is not merely giving just capricious, willy-nilly dictates to his people. He's not just, you know, I think this would be good if you guys did this. I don't really have any good reason why, but do this. You see, God isn't just giving capricious dictates to his people. Throughout the, the law, we see that God's dictates are always accompanied by doctrine. They're always accompanied by the reason why. He doesn't give them the what without quickly adding the why. So he doesn't just say, hey, I really want you just to get rid of those icky people that are, that are murdering and stealing and dishonoring parents and breaking the Sabbath. And I really just, ew, they, they kind of irritate me. He's not um, just giving, like, get rid of those people. He's giving the, the reason why, the undergirding reason why the violators of these laws are to be executed. Another example of God not just giving the what but the why is throughout the book of Leviticus where, again, as you, as you read it and you see all the, the ceremonies and the sacrifices that feel very repetitious, you'll notice that at the end of each of those sections, very often you'll have this phrase that's frequently used, the why phrase for Leviticus. Ye shall be holy, you shall be set apart, you shall not be like other nations, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. I am other, I am separate, I am not like this world. I am the creator. You are the creatures. I am holy. And so throughout Leviticus, you have this summary phrase, God giving the reason why they're to follow these sacrifices and these ordinances. Not just because God felt like it, but the reason was God was holy and he was calling his people to be a holy people. Here in Deuteronomy, we see something similar going on. It's not just get rid of these people because they're sort of the bottom regs of uh, rung of society, it's evildoers must be put away. Why? So that evil can be purged out of the congregation of Israel. And there's, I think, a really helpful, very practical lesson here, even in parenting, that um, my mom and dad were often fond of saying, uh, when, they were, when they would teach on parenting and that sort of thing, would remind parents that don't just discipline your kids because they're irritating you, don't just discipline them because they're throwing a fit. But when you discipline them, it always needs to be accompanied by the moral reason why. The biblical reason why what they're doing is sinful, is breaking one of God's commandments, is not loving their neighbor, or is dishonoring their parents. So don't just discipline your children, but discipline them and accompany that with the reason why. So here in Deuteronomy, the why phrase, this Thus you shall put away the evil from the midst of thee, is a, is a striking phrase. It means, thus you shall burn up, thus you shall consume away, thus you shall eat up with fire, thus you shall destroy the evil that is in the midst of thee. God is bent on driving out wickedness. God is desirous to purge out, to burn away, to consume like fire, to destroy evil in the midst of his people. Which is what happened, right, every time a sin offering was made. You know, the, the worshiper would come, place his hands upon the head of the lamb, identifying himself with the lamb. The lamb would be cut open, flayed. The, the 
the call and the kidneys and the fat that was upon them would be placed on the altar, and then it would be burned up, signifying this was you. This was your sin. You ought to have been the one on the altar. You ought to be, have been the one to be burned up. But God has graciously given a means whereby you might be forgiven, you might be spared. God's grace and mercy might be shown to you as a result of the sacrifice of this innocent creature, this innocent lamb. And so God does this and would be doing this every time a, a, a believing Israelite would come offering a, a lamb for their sins. The animal was consumed away, was, was burned up by the fire. However, what do you do when there's someone who is flagrantly, repeatedly, unrepentantly, grievously violating God's law? Well, in executing a convicted evildoer, the Israelite community, the congregation as a whole, became the hands and the hands of God, the, the means whereby the fire of God's wrath against such sin consumed away such a sinner, burned up such a sinner. So executing or exiling, and just as a parenthetical statement here, uh, if you look in 1 Kings 22 and 2 Kings 23, there's, there's these statements about uh, these good kings in, in, in Judah's history who... Um, as they're restoring order after there had been a season of apostasy and backsliding, oftentimes these godly kings would um, go through the land, purging out the, the idol worship and getting things back on track. And it would say of them that they would exile or drive out um, uh, the male prostitutes, the, the sodomites, the, um, the, the evildoers. And, so, and, and it would say of them that thus... Josiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all his days. So the declaration of, of, of these kings was often they did right in the Lord. Uh, they, they fulfilled God's law through exile. And so execution or exile uh, of, of evildoers is to be done in order to remove evil from God's congregation. So God's concern here, God's aim, God's reason why is so that his people will be a holy people and so that his, uh, his congregation, his dwelling place, will be a holy place where evil was not allowed to reside in it. Now for some of the particulars. Moses is quite measured, making it clear uh, that this death penalty, this execution of evildoers was not to be carried out through kangaroo courts or through vigilante mobs. This wasn't just, hey, if you catch somebody doing something a little bit crooked, you just go out and, and deal with them yourself. It's very clear throughout Deuteronomy that this is to be done with due process, with, uh, with circumspection, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, which is uh, the, the provision for conviction demanded that two or three witnesses. And that shows that... Um, that due process, as, as a hot-button item in, our, in recent uh, news cycles, that due process is a biblical doctrine. That we shouldn't take it lightly that though God's word gives provision for execution of evildoers and those who break, uh, egregiously break God's law can be executed, 
We shouldn't take it lightly that that provision is there, but it's also remember that the qualifications around it, the guardrails around it, are that through the mouth of two or three witnesses, through the judges investigating, looking diligently into it. This is a biblical principle, biblical doctrine. And what's striking about that is that this means that God's law would rather allow a guilty man to go free than for an innocent man to be unjustly executed or unjustly punished. Isn't that that interesting? That God would rather have uh, a guilty man go free than an innocent man be unjustly punished. After all, in the light of the law, every Israelite would be deemed guilty. Every Israelite was getting away with it. Every individual is revealed to be guilty. And every day of human history, God has let guilty sinners go free. However, along with that, in the law, God commands the innocent animals be sacrificed for the guilty. And ultimately, as good Christians, we know that the most innocent man who ever lived was sacrificed so that we who are guilty and trust in him might go free. So we should never take lightly taking a life. Execution is not something that we should revel in or think of the... the the hangings and the uh, unjust executions, the mob uh, vigilante justice. That's not what Scripture, that's not what Deuteronomy is aiming for here. But we shouldn't sugarcoat it. There are instances where an evildoer's life was forfeit through gross disobedience to God's law. God alone has the prerogative to take a life. And he gives the qualifications as to when that would be appropriate, when that would be allowable. Remember, he's put the sword of justice into the civil magistrate's hand. And he's, God has stipulated what instances are permissible for the civil magistrate to execute wicked men. It's, it's, it's saddening to think that a, as our culture uh, endeavors to veer away from, and our, our nation endeavors to veer away from uh, biblically-based law, that we would begin slowly and surely removing the death penalty from our, from our laws. Uh, for instance, uh, Washington State's Supreme Court, that that bastion of justice and and, uh, godly order, Washington State, recently ruled, and this is from the the Huffington Puffington Post, ruled that the death penalty is unconstitutional, and they converted to life in prison all pending death sentences in the state. The same country that would do that would at the same time be killing 700,000 
or more babies every year without a jury, judge, or trial. That as we veer away from how God would biblically order society and biblically order a Christian nation, we see that we flip things on their head. We, we turn them uh, around opposite. Uh, I think of uh, an example of this. Uh, my, my wife told me a story from uh, South Africa where she's from that uh, a man came into his house and found um, a man abusing his, his young son. And the police get a call that says, by the way, I found this guy messing around with my son. Uh, he is disabled right now, but if you, you need to come soon, otherwise he will not be with us much longer. And you, you recognize that when you, when you read some of these news stories, there's something, there's our conscience, that I believe God has written upon our hearts. There's something that rises up within us and says, that isn't right. That needs to be met with swift justice. And, and think of the fact that what would happen when Israel would obey these laws to execute these evildoers who've been proven to violate these specific laws, that what would be happening before them is that this is what happens when sin takes complete hold of a person. This is how ugly sin gets. This is how vile sin is. And this is how severely God will meet with sin. This is how seriously God takes sin. And that in the execution of a convicted evildoer, what's being played out before the congregation of Israel is what the lake of fire is, what hell is, what the second death will be. That God will drive out wickedness. God will not tolerate one speck, one grain of the, of the yeast of sin in the midst of his people. And I think we do ourselves a great disservice by not trusting that that very visceral, very uh, stark picture of what happens to sin gets further and further from being placed in front of us. And, and we must not slip into the thinking that, that this is just a vestigial organ of the Old Testament, that we in the New Testament can, can do away with this sort of thing without running into severe hiccups in how God would have us order our society and how God would have us understand the way the world works. Modern attempts, even in Christian circles, to get rid of the death penalty is not a display of love and compassion, per se. It's merely an example of us thinking we know better than God does as to how our nation and our society should be ordered. And it's interesting, like I mentioned, that when, when you hear these uh, very disturbing news stories that there's something that rises up within us as a father, as a mother, and you, you think if someone ever did that uh, to my child, or if, if that ever happened to my spouse, or if, if my spouse ever did that to me, there's this rising up that of, of a sense of justice that something ought to deal with that. There's something in us 
if we just wipe away and say, no, 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 let's all just, let's all just get along, let's all just be happy, let's all just be merciful and loving and, and gracious to each other, you realize that what that does is that takes away the, the, the teeth, the, the glory even, of what mercy even is. That it, it doesn't have much punch, does it, for us to say, well, you, you killed 50 people, you're a serial, you're a serial killer, You've done all these evil, we've, we've caught you on tape, we've f apprehended you red-handed, but because there's no, nothing we can really do, we'll s stick you in prison for, next, for, the re for 350 years is the, the life sentence. You see, what's taken out of that is the profound statement of a, of a judge, as it were, saying, guilty and deserving of death. You see what's removed is a, is a gospel principle that the wages of sin is death. And if we, if we try to tuck that away in some footnote of ancient Christian, ancient biblical religion believed that, but now in these more enlightened days, you see, what we're doing is we're no longer able to lift high the glory of the mercy that says that all those that trust in Christ, even a man on death row, if he trusts in Christ, his sins might be forgiven. Maybe not the consequences, but his sins are forgiven. And this is one of the main points that Paul picks up on in Romans 13. It's that the civil magistrate is God's deacon. The language there is that uh, the, the, the justice system is God's deacon, a servant, a minister of justice, executing God's wrath upon criminals in order to preserve the peace and holiness of the whole community. And it's interesting that before that, in, in Romans 12, one of the things that Paul says Turn there real quick. The end of Romans 12. Verse 19. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Next chapter. God says, my servant, my deacon of vengeance, of dealing with evildoers, is the civil magistrate. So in, in Deuteronomy here, we have that when a false teacher, which are sure to arise, they have a habit of cropping up, when they're sure to arise to entice God's people from pure worship of the, tr of the true God, whether this uh, false teacher was a scintillating prophet with signs and wonders. That's verses 1 through 5. If he has all sorts of signs, wonders, and, and gains a following, the next couple verses there in chapter 13, if he's a near family member, say, like, yeah, let's, 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 let's make an idol. Let's worship this false god. Let's, let's turn away. Let's not, let's not go to church anymore. Let's watch Oprah instead. If it's a near family member 
or a scintillating prophet with signs and wonders, or an entire city later in the chapter, if, if a whole city is, has gone rogue, the congregation, God says, you must not pity these false teachers. And if the whole city has gone astray, you must not pity the whole city. And if anyone endeavored to turn you away from the Lord your God, he was to be destroyed. Later on in the book, we, we learn that false witnesses... If you tried to indict someone on a phony charge, it was undermining the very foundation of true justice. And thus, whatever they sought to have happen to the accused came upon them. Rebellious sons and unchaste daughters were a danger to covenantal faithfulness and thus could be executed for the sake of the purity of the whole congregation. And that's one of those passages that in apologetic settings people like to raise and say, oh, if, look, the Bible is so mean that if, if a son curses his parents, he could go, they could take him off and execute him. But remember that what the language there is in, in Deuteronomy 21 is that this son has a, has a track record of being a dissolute, a glutton, a drunkard. He's... he's, he's of absolute no use to the, to, the, to the congregation of Israel. He's defiant. He's not, uh, he's, a, he's a glutton and a drunkard. And he's defied the repeated admonitions of his parents. And as such, was in danger of execution. An unchaste daughter. So the, the, the passage in Deuteronomy 22 is that if a, if a family passed off a daughter who is not a virgin, as a virgin, and she enters in a marriage, and the husband finds out later, he could theoretically bring a charge of falsehood. And the reason being that this was a pretense of purity when in actuality this was, uh, this was lies and deceit and impurity. And, and, the, um, and it's again protecting against illegitimate children. It's, it's protecting against a society where the, the foundation of the family is fractured and, and indistinguishable. Further, rapists, adulterers, slavers, child traffickers, and murderers were, again, and all this is if found guilty by the mouth of two or three witnesses, could be punished with death. And we should take that, again, as a maximum penalty, not a minimum. And why could they be punished with death? Why in all these instances are these all so vital? Why, why does God go out of his way to circle these and say this is a, a, an egregious violation of one of the Ten Commandments? Why? Because Israel was, a holy, was to be a holy nation in which God dwelt. And as such, sins which, which threaten the stability and the purity of the whole nation could not and would not be tolerated. Remember when you read um, the instruction that, that Moses gives that when they go into the land, they build themselves houses, that they're supposed to put the law on their, the, thresh, the threshold of their door? That was, that was to remind them that God lived with them, that God dwelt in their midst. That Israel was to be God's home. It reminds me of in, um, in the New Testament where Paul says, Know ye not that you're the temple 
You're the house of God. And remember, God drives out sin. One other point to, to, to bring out is that Paul employs this phrase, this social you put away evil from the midst of thee, when he's telling the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5 that they needed to excommunicate the man who had taken his father's wife. This guy had been a fornicator, was well known in the Corinthian church, and Paul's sort of grabbing, grabbing his hair saying, what are you doing? Why aren't you dealing with this? And he says in 1 Corinthians 5, 13, by driving this man out, by excommunicating this man, by saying, you are not a brother. You might profess to be a believer in Jesus Christ, but you are not living like a brother. His concluding phrase is this one from Deuteronomy, therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. While Corinth was a sexually debauched city, it was as bad and as ugly as it gets, Paul rebukes the Corinthian church, the believers there, for turning a blind eye to the fornication they could deal with. You know, you can think of the Corinthian church bemoaning like, man, we live in such a wicked, yucky city. Just look at, look at the headlines. Things are getting worse and worse. And Paul's saying, and you're leaving the fornication right under your noses, which you could address, which you could deal with. You're turning a blind eye to it. How could they ever think to conquer Corinth with the gospel if the gospel hadn't conquered them? How could the Israelites ever think that in driving out the, the, the wickedness and the wicked nations of Canaan and tolerate the wickedness in their own midst, how could they think that God would be satisfied with that? That God would think that was okay? They, the Corinthian church, and the Israelites of old needed moxie, needed courage, needed a spine to oust the wicked man. But instead, the Corinthians had shown temerity, timidity, like, oh, he might, you know, he's a big donor, he, you know, he's a good tither. You see, faithful justice always requires courage. Now, it's... It's vital that we, we bring this home to how does that affect me. You see, what, commanded, what God commanded to take place for corporate Israel is intended to take place in each individual life. You realize that what's being revealed here and taught here is that sinners must die for their sin. And Jesus, contrary to theology of youth pastors, Jesus takes these laws, and rather than dialing them back, dialing back the intensity, he ramps it up. He turns up the heat of conviction. Think of what he said in the, the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said, da-da-da-da-da, but I say, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I say he who looks at a woman to lust after her has committed adultery already in his heart. And he says later in, in Matthew 5, 29, Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, just sort of, you know, it's okay, it's all right. I love you anyway. He says, pluck it out. Cut off your hand. If it causes you to sin, deal with it. If it's causing evil to abide in the house of God, don't pity it. Don't coddle it. Don't give it quarter. 
and that's Jesus. So look at your heart. A murderer is there. A thief is in there. An adulterer is there. A slave trader is there. A Hitler is there. An idol is there which looks like the God known as you. Which means you must die. We read it earlier in the service, actually, but James says that if you've broken the law at even its most minuscule point, you are a lawbreaker, and the wages of your sin is death. But in comes the gospel mandate. The flesh must be purged out. Evil must not be allowed to remain. It must be driven out. Remember that when, when Paul was telling the Corinthians that they needed to deal with this wicked man in their midst, one of the other things he references is Passover. He says, keep the feast. Take out the leaven and keep the feast. Remember that what God has laid before us, which we'll take here in a few moments, is a meal that reminds us that God dwells with us. A thrice holy God who's coming to drive out your sin and mine, who's coming to make for himself a holy people, who's coming to establish his kingdom where no darkness will dwell, where sorrow and the suffering of sin will be no more. The gospel comes in and says the flesh must be purged out. The old man must be crucified, Romans 6.6. 6. And the imagery there is that when, when Paul says, who will deliver me from this body of death, the imagery is that there was this punishment where the Romans would chain a dead corpse to you as a form of execution. And while that dead corpse was rotting away, it would infect you and you would slowly but surely die. That's the imagery that Paul uses, saying, who will deliver me from this body of death? Your old man that's chained to you, that's causing you to rot away, must be crucified, must be cut away. You must mortify, kill, slay the dragon in your heart, your flesh, Romans 8, 13. Colossians 3 says you must put off uncleanness. And how? How is this to be done? Is it fake it till you make it? The only way to deal with you the only way to deal with the death sentence that hangs over your head is to deal with yourself. The only way to deal with yourself is by faith in the Lord Jesus, who was driven outside the camp, who was burned up with the wrath of God, who was hung on a tree as a curse, in order that any lying, murderous, adulterous, conniving, scheming, stinking sinner who trusts in him might find their death in his death. Might find their death penalty that hangs over their head forgiven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that by faith, by grace, you offer to us salvation through your son, Jesus. We thank you that one of your blessings to us is to reveal to us the the horrors of sin, the horrors of hell, the horrors of the wrath of God, all that we might see more clearly, the glories 
of your innocent son who died for us, that we who are dead in our trespasses and sins might be made alive through him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, but we might be made members of righteousness. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Here on this table is edible word. But what is this word? Prophet Jeremiah asks, Is not my word like as fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rocks in pieces? Hebrews 4 tells us God's word is sharper than any two-edged sword. God's word is a fire. God's word is a hammer. God's word is a razor-bladed sword. Fire burns, hammers crush, swords pierce. This is the word you are going to eat today. The word that also made and upholds the universe. The word that became flesh, dwelt among us, and saved us by his broken body and shed blood. Here is that word. In consuming this bread and wine, we eat the word. This word gives no quarter to lies, unbelief, or sin. The word that rules the world with a rod of iron. The word that burns up stubble, crushes stony hearts, cuts to pieces all our petty excuses. This edible word, when eaten in faith, is like a heat-seeking missile. It will find and destroy sin. Yes, this word will slice you open, lay you bare, all that it might heal, nourish, and save you. It, or rather he, is the remedy for the cancer. Nevertheless, this flaming, crushing, slicing word is food. The psalmist sings, How sweet are thy words unto my taste, yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. This word will save by destroying what's killing you. This word will nourish by extracting the parasite. This word will build you up by toppling all the idols. This word will save you by crucifying you in Christ. And that is why this word is sweeter than honey on the honeycomb. So come and welcome to Jesus. Pray with me. Father God, you slay that you might raise us up. You convict us with the sharpened sword of your word in order to compel us to flee to you. We taste and see that you are good. You love us too dearly to leave us dead in our sin. You love us too, so greatly that you sent your word, your son, to save us. For all this, we give thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Uh, I mentioned earlier that uh, oftentimes passages like this, the death penalty, are brought up in uh, apologetic and evangelistic uh, instances where people say, Do you know, does, doesn't the Bible teach you can uh, execute a son who mouths off to you? And, in which case, you should say, I'd love to take a look at it with you. Let's take a look at what the Bible says. Let's, let's turn to Scripture. What we may not do is get red-faced about what the Scripture says. What we may not do is set it aside or explain it away or say, oh, no, no, that's, that's Old Testament and this is New. What we must do is say, yes, it's God's Word. Let's study it. Let's learn it. Let's apply it. Let's believe it. And let's find in it the Savior whom God sent to deal with the death penalty that's hanging over each and every one of us. Hear the charge of the Lord. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. Christ Church downtown, thanks you for listening.